He's Hacker. I like a good serial killer documentary. He hasn't taken the pounding that wide receivers take. Uh, it's just a pound job, and, and guys are tired towards that, that four minutes. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. I would be lying to you if I said I had not heard things. They're like a bad rash. You hear a lot of things. Some are true, some aren't. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Tuesday night to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us on our late night show. Are you kidding me? Ladies and gentlemen of Jacksonville, Florida, where else would you rather be right now? Then listening to Dylan Denmark and yours truly from 10 o'clock to midnight on Hacker After Dark. And we certainly appreciate you hanging out with us. The Florida Gators, for the second time at home in about three weeks, have managed to blow a 20-point second-half lead. Now, the last time this happened was against the Georgia Bulldogs. They happened to win it in overtime. Florida tonight was up 60 to 40 on LSU at about the 14 minute mark. It is now 81-80 Florida, 10 seconds to go, and freshman Alex Condon is going to the free throw line to try to escape an LSU team that entered tonight 4 and 6 in the conference. Gators at home have completely blown again a 20 point second half lead. They got away with it the last time. We'll see if they get away with it tonight. We'll keep you updated. Again, Florida by one, now Florida by two. Condon hits the free throw, 82-80, 10 seconds to go in the ball game. Guest lineup looks like this. As I told Rick, my buddy Brian Braddock, the head football coach at St. Augustine High School, he was the Whataburger Jaguar Coach of the Year. All 32 NFL teams have a high school coach of the year that they give that honor to. Brian Braddock got that honor, and he got sent to the Super Bowl out in Las Vegas. So we'll talk to Brian Braddock about his experience in Las Vegas at Super Bowl 58. Also, Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar. He's coming up in less than 15 minutes as we take a look at the Jaguar offseason, an offseason that should start picking up news-wise in the very near future. Florida has survived. 82-80, LSU had a shot to tie it at the buzzer. It comes up short, so the Gators, for the second time this year, blow a 20-point second-half lead at home, and for the second time this year, they win regardless of that. Georgia a few weeks ago and LSU tonight. Florida now 17-7 on the year, 7-4 in the Southeastern Conference. So Jordan DeLugo, Brent Beard talking college ball, Brian Braddock of St. Augustine, we are absolutely loaded, and we are glad you are with us. Every night here on Hacker After Dark, we do give you a big deal of the night, and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. I think most, if not all of you, can relate to this. Your sports grudge, right? Your sports bad blood. Whether it's a franchise that you despise, 
a coach you despise or a player you despise for whatever reason. They always beat you. They talk negatively about you. They were terrible for your franchise. There's a bunch of reasons why we don't like certain people in sports or certain teams in sports. If you've listened to me over the years, you know that I hold a lot of sports grudges. Um, Maybe more so 10 or so years ago than I do now, which is kind of the point of what I'm going to get to here in a moment. But one of my main sports grudges, and it has been this way for over 25 years, is Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal was drafted by my beloved Orlando Magic in 1992. It was awesome. Great games, great memories, NBA Finals appearance. And Shaquille O'Neal, basically in the middle of the night, four years into his career, departs Orlando for Los Angeles. And I've always despised Shaquille O'Neal for that. I always said that you could tell a true Orlando Magic fan by what they thought of Shaquille O'Neal. True Orlando Magic fans could not stand Shaquille O'Neal. And the reason why, not so much that he left, but that he essentially lied. He said he wanted to come back. He said he would be back in the millions of dollars and the Hollywood glamour and movies and all that. And he leaves in the middle of the night, leaves us high and dry. Dwight Howard left Orlando, but he made no bones about it. He said, I want out of here. Shaq gave us hope and still left. And I've held that grudge for a long time, man. But seeing Shaquille O'Neal tonight get inducted into the Orlando Magic Hall of Fame, that grudge to me is gone. It lasted a quarter century, over a quarter century. But I can tell I've gotten older, I've gotten wiser, I've gotten more mature when it comes to these sort of things. And I think back to the four glorious years that Shaquille O'Neal gave my Orlando Magic. Despite the fact how he left, which again, I thought was terrible, but that was 1996. It's probably time for me to get over it 28 years later. So, congratulations to Shaq, one of the greatest members in the history of the franchise that I have loved since the time I was six years old. Shaquille O'Neal goes into the Orlando Magic Hall of Fame. My sports grudge when it comes to Shaq has finally been broken almost three decades later. Well-deserved to go in, and if the Orlando Magic are willing to put Shaq in after what he did to them, me as a fan of that franchise can also be willing to let that go. Unfortunately for the Magic, after 10-year absence off of Turner Sports, think about that for a second. They had not had a home game in Orlando aired on TNT since 2013. That's pathetic. But that's how bad it's been being a Magic fan. They did air on TNT tonight because of Shaq's induction into the Magic Hall of Fame. Oklahoma City comes in and just beats the crap out of us. But... Good times are on the way for Orlando. I don't know if it'll be as good as the days of Shaq and Penny, but with Paolo Bancaro, Franz Wagner, Orlando doing a little something. So Shaquille O'Neal into the Magic Hall of Fame tonight. Certainly a well 
deserved honor. Denmark, you were telling me that you're not one to hold a sports grudge necessarily, although the Daytona 500 is coming up on Sunday. You probably wouldn't know that unless you're a diehard racing fan because I hear no buzz about that thing whatsoever. We play the promos here at the station. That's that's what I'm saying. That's how I know about it. The commercials on 1010XL. If it wasn't for the commercials on our radio station, I don't even know if I would have realized the Daytona 500 was on Sunday. That's good advertising by here uh, by us here at 1010XL. But you, Denmark, say that if you did have a grudge, it would go to a NASCAR driver. Yeah, I said Kyle Busch just because I I was a big Dale Jr. fan growing up, and I remember in 08, whenever Dale Jr. went to Rick Hendrick, and... Dale Jr.'s what would have been almost his first win at Richmond. Kyle Busch put him in the wall. He kind of went a little little too fast going into turn three. And, like, I kind of didn't like him for a long period of time. But a lot of it is, like, how you are as a person. Like, I, I'm not a highly emotional person. So, like, I'm not like, oh, I hate that guy. And then, like, I don't, you know, I can't get over that for, like, a long period of time. You, you, you're a highly emotional person. Yeah, I get pissed. So, you know, that kind of feeds into what you already are. Yeah, I get very, very upset. Now, again, the 25, 30-year-old version of me was way more grudge-holding than the 40-year-old version of me. And five or ten years down the road, maybe I won't hold grudges at all, but there was a time Billy Packer on the broadcasting side for CBS, because I thought his commentary during Florida-Michigan State, that title game in 2000, was outrageous. Uh, Lee Corso, because he's a Seminole. Brent Musburger, because he's a Seminole. Um, who, who else was there? Uh, Jack Childress, the referee in 03. The swindle in the swamp, Florida, Florida State. Uh, Tameric Van over with the block in the back on the Warwick Dunn touchdown in 93. I can keep rattling them off, man. The referee that called the personal foul on Dallas Baker in Knoxville that gave Tennessee another shot at that field goal. I held a lot of grudges for a long time long time but to me none of them was bigger than the grudge I held towards Shaquille O'Neal but again seeing him back in Orlando tonight seeing him go into the Magic Hall of Fame was a pretty cool pretty cool scene um again Florida survives if you're just joining us the Gators blew another 20 point second half lead tonight but they survive at the buzzer 82 80 they defeat LSU and all of a sudden, Denmark, the Gators now 17-7, and 7-4 and four in the SEC. We're going to have Jerry Palm of CBS Sports on tomorrow. He is the bracketology guy for CBS. Here's what that Auburn win on Saturday did for Florida. They went from the last four in in Jerry Palm's bracket to after they beat Auburn, they're now an eight seed. That is Dang. what a quad one win will do. And I believe Lenardi on ESPN has him as an eight seed as well. So the win tonight, Florida right now comfortably in the NCAA tournament. So conference championships are how how far away from now? Three weeks? Uh, we're one, about a month away from Selection Sunday. Okay. So, yeah, the tournament's probably about three weeks so away. So what does Florida have to do from now until then to secure a spot in the tournament? I think the magic number is 20. Because if you get to 20, that's three more conference wins. That would give you 20 wins overall and 10 wins in the SEC. And if you have 20 wins overall and 10 wins in the SEC, I don't know how you don't get in. So I think three and four in the last seven gets you in. Anything more 
than three wins, I think you're a shoe-in to get in. Maybe if you go three and four, you need maybe a first-round SEC tournament victory. But Denmark, there's no way with their strength of schedule, if they win 20 or 21 games, they're not going to be in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. I sparingly watched Gator basketball, uh, but... Yeah, I, I know that uh, those two big wins they've had in the last couple of weeks have definitely helped their case. And, you know, I'm sure during the tournament time I'll watch and, you know, I'll take whatever notes you have and I'll just uh, echo what you say. They're a fun team to watch. Look, I mean, I'm not going to break down the X's and O's of every SEC basketball team, but when it comes to Florida, Riley Kugel, Will Richard, Zion Pullen, Walter Clayton, they got really good guard play. Han Lockton and Samuel and Condon in the front court. That's a fun team to watch. Give Todd Golden credit. I ripped him a little last year. Todd Golden's doing a very good job this year. All right, guest lineup, Jordan DeLugo. Let's get into the Jaguars. Let's get into the offseason as we sit 27 days away from NFL free agency. We'll also have Brent Beard talking some college ball. Florida's over-under win total is out for 2024's football season. Oh, have you seen that thing? The over-under win total for the Gators, Denmark. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, I saw it. Five and a half same for the as second South Carol- straight year. Yeah, same as South Carolina and I think Arkansas. Not a lot is expected of the Gators. We'll also do a little NBA talk tonight with Brian Teporek of Bleacher Report and Forbes. Our late-night show, we're glad you're with us. We're with you till midnight with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. It's 1010XL. It's 92.5 FM, and it's Hacker After Dark. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The Super Bowl in the rearview mirror. The NFL offseason has officially begun. And, boy, the NFL calendar, you got to love it. It's going to be in the news quite frequently over the next couple of months. Franchise tags can be handed out as early as next week. Then it's to Indianapolis for the Combine. Soon after that, free agency, which is less than a month away. And then, of course, the draft there in late April. With all that being said, Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar. He's one of our guys here on 1010XL, and we always enjoy having him on Hacker After Dark. Jordan, how you doing? I'm doing really well. Fired up to talk about this. I know... The season is what you look forward to, but I really enjoy this offseason in the NFL. Like you said, I mean, they just do a tremendous job of keeping fans locked in. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a dead period during the summer, but uh, overall it's, it's about a 12 month, a 12 month game here. Yeah, no, I agree. People always ask me, do you take time off after the season? I say, no, I take time off in May and June to kind of recharge the batteries because from February to basically the week or two after the draft, there's a lot of stuff that is going on. And Jordan, you and I haven't spoken since right after the season, so it's been a little over a month, and a lot has transpired in the last 30 or so days, including a brand-new defensive coordinator in Ryan Nielsen replacing Mike Caldwell. Your thoughts on that hire and what Nielsen could bring to this Jaguar defense? I think it's an excellent hire overall, and um... – I'm a little surprised that the Jaguars were able to make it happen so quickly. Like, obviously, their search lasted a little while, but they immediately had put in a request for Ryan Nielsen, a request that the Falcons blocked. They eventually decided they were going to go in a different direction. So they uh, allowed the interview. And basically, as soon as that happened, very quickly after that, they had named him their guy. And I was surprised there wasn't more competition for his services, quite frankly, because this is a guy 
that came in obviously a great pedigree coming from New Orleans as a defensive line guy and you've seen what New Orleans defensive lines have looked like for a long time then becomes co-defensive coordinator for them then full-time defensive coordinator for Atlanta in his, his first year you see them improve rapidly in all the key categories on the defensive side of the ball when you talk about third down defense red zone defense all this stuff and they didn't really even do it uh, with with a high turnover clip which you know teams that have really high turnover margins, that's not as stable of a metric as teams that just execute as a high, at a high level. So I think he did a tremendous job. His teams play aggressively. Uh, all of the guys that you've talked about that, that have been coached by him have glowing reviews. Uh, you've heard a lot of players say he's the best in the business. He's a rising star. He's going to be a head coach soon. So overall, outside of the fact that maybe the Jaguars don't have him for very long, because he does become a head coach, I think Ryan Nielsen was a terrific hire for them. Yeah, you hear Ryan Nielsen, attack, 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 aggressive, 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 as you mentioned, and you think about Trayvon Walker, and that's the guy I think of when Ryan Nielsen comes in. Based on the people I've talked to in Atlanta, people around the league, they think Nielsen will be terrific for Trayvon Walker. And Jordan, the last time you and I talked, it was all doom and gloom because it was right after the season. Well, We've had a month or so to decompress, and when you really look back, amidst that awful collapse, right, losing five out of six, one of the glaring positives was Trayvon Walker really seemed to find himself at the end of the year. Yeah, for me, Trayvon Walker, he took a very nice step forward in 2023 for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And like you said, I think Trayvon and even Josh Allen and even some of these younger guys and even a guy like Devon Hamilton, who's coming off of a year that was marred by the back situation that happened right before the start of the regular season, all these guys should um, should see improvement in this this defensive scheme and being coached by Ryan Nielsen, who obviously won't be their position coach, but he will have a heavy hand in that defensive line room. So yeah, I think Trayvon Walker has taken big steps forward. He's going to still have his his position coach in Bill Shuey, which I think is really good for the Jaguars being able to keep him because he's a guy that obviously got the most out of Josh Allen, got a ton out of Trayvon Walker in, in 2023. And I, I like the way that Trayvon Walker is trending. He's obviously a, a, a physical freak, as you would say, but uh, a guy that I think is growing as a technician growing as a as a edge rusher for the Jaguars and I think the the future is bright for him I still wouldn't put him in a category like you you look at he had 10 sacks this year he didn't look like he was a guy that was creating a ton of pressure consistently but again we knew that coming in as a guy coming out of Georgia who was not really a refined pass rusher you knew it would take a little while for Trayvon Walker well Getting 10 sacks in year two, that is a nice step forward, and I think it's something for Jaguars fans to be very optimistic about moving forward. Yeah, there's no question about that. Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar, here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. All right, beginning next week, I believe February 20th through March the 5th is the two-week window where the franchise tag can be handed out, the transition tag as well, although very few teams – uh, do the transition tag anymore. Here's the thing, Jordan, about the franchise tag and the transition tag when it comes to Josh Allen. Do you believe at this point it would be a surprise, a shock, whatever verbiage you want to use, if Josh Allen is not indeed franchised by the Jaguars during that two-week window? 
Oh yeah, I'd be very surprised. I mean, the timeline, right? Season ends early January. You get to the Trent Balky presser. He's like, oh yeah, Josh Allen's going to be a Jaguar next year, but he doesn't say how that's going to happen. And he also says, we haven't communicated regarding negotiations. We haven't started that process yet. And then you get to the Pro Bowl games and Josh Allen says, I'm here. I'm ready to talk. We're not talking. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how they're going to get this deal done quickly. You've seen what Trent Balky has done in the past. A lot of these deals with homegrown talents take a lot, a long time. And for whatever reason, Trent Balky has been willing to throw cash at free agents uh, and seemingly overpay them you know, incoming free agents, but the guys that you need to keep in your building that you've drafted, obviously Balky didn't draft Josh Allen, but the guys that your organization has drafted seemingly wants to play more hardball. So yeah, I absolutely think that, that Josh Allen's going to receive the franchise tag. Will Josh Allen be receptive to, to that? I guess is the question. Uh, I've, I've talked to guys from spot track. I've talked to guys from PFF. They're projecting Josh Allen in the 25 to 26 million dollar a year range I don't believe the franchise tag would get him there it would be about the 22 23 million dollar range so do you foresee issues when it comes to Josh Allen signing that tag absolutely I wouldn't sign it if I was him I certainly wouldn't sign it um, soon right he doesn't have any real benefit to to signing it until if it comes down to potentially are you going to play or not in 2024, um, then you have a decision to make, obviously. But for him, why sign it and why be receptive to that? He's a guy that has given everything he can to the, the city and, and to the team for the last five years. He, he has shown everything he can. Obviously, the sack numbers weren't always eye-popping, but he was always creating pre- pressure at a high rate. He was always... You know, after Calais Campbell left, I mean, he has been the Jaguars' best defensive player, maybe their best player overall uh, for several years. And he's a guy that deserves respect. He's a guy that that deserves a, a new contract. He's in the prime of his career. He's playing at an extremely high level. He's done everything the right way. Like, how is that not the model of a guy you want to keep around and you want to show this is how we do business? We pay our guys. We don't string them along, right? I agree with far more of what you're saying than I disagree with. I guess the only, I won't even call it pushback, the only thing that I'm thinking about is 2020, 2021, and 2022, and you alluded to it, Josh Allen had 17 and a half sacks those three years. I believe one of those years he had some injury issues, but still yeah, 17 and a half. Yeah. yeah, so 17 and a half sacks, 2020 through 2022. He equaled the three years there with what he did in 2023. Would that give you any pause at all to make him a top five paid edge player in the NFL? None for me, because even when he wasn't producing the sack numbers, the pressure numbers were there. The underlying metrics were suggesting that if he got into a better situation, which he was in a better situation this year, uh, you know, having Trayvon Walker being being a guy that steps up and and being in the same defense for the second straight year and having the same uh, positional coach and having a defense behind him playing a little bit better, uh, at least for a chunk of the season. Yeah, I, I think that um, this was a guy that even when the sack numbers weren't piling up, you could see that he was playing at a high level, giving full effort. And 
I know that you're paying for pressure. You're paying for, for getting after the quarterback, but make no mistake about it. This is a very good football player on base downs that does a tremendous job setting the edge, playing the run, and really just hustling. Like You see him make plays all over the field that you do not see a lot of edge rushers around the league that are able to make the same type of plays. A couple of more for Jordan DeLugo of Generation Jaguar. That'll be the first question that's answered. Josh Allen, the franchise tag, again, can start being handed out February the 20th. If he gets franchised, which I agree with you, I anticipate that happening, what do you believe, Jordan, that means for the future of Calvin Ridley here in Jacksonville? I think it makes it tough, right? Um, I think it makes it real tough. Are you going to give up a second-round pick to sign Calvin Ridley? Uh, that's tough. And, and you know, are you going to give up a third-round pick and, and potentially let him walk? That's tough, too. Uh, I don't think that a T. Higgins is going to hit the market. I don't think – you know, uh, Michael Pittman Jr. and Mike Evans. I don't think all these big names are going to just be be sitting out there in the free agent market this year. So I think it's going to be Calvin Ridley looking like one of the top potential free agents at the position, a position that you have quite frankly struggled with for a long time. Christian Kirk is obviously a very good player in the slot for you. Evan Ingram's a good receiver at tight end. But if you let Calvin Ridley out the door, then what do you have? Uh, I mean, it's a tough decision and, and not a decision I'm envious of, of having to make. You know, everybody talks about Allen and Ridley, and clearly those are the big two, and then there is a gap between the rest. But there are 16 additional restricted or unrestricted free agents. Any guys from, you know, Dewan Smoot to Jamal Agnew, Caleb on Chase on, guys of that sort. But quickly, I want to focus on one other guy because I would put this guy probably at number three. If Allen's one and Ridley's two – is Ezra Cleveland the third most important guy for the Jaguars heading into free agency? Yeah, I do think so. And I think that um, how they decide to position themselves with that interior offensive line, it's possible that they're looking for three new starters. Maybe Ezra Cleveland is, is one of them in 2024. Uh, but Brandon Sheriff's getting paid a lot of money. Uh, he's getting paid like a top three guard, and he's not playing at that level at this point in his career. And we know the injury history. Um, Luke Fortner is not performing at center. So do you want to have some stability and then bring back a guy that you do know that you have had in this building that you've seen produce at a high level throughout his career in Minnesota? I think if the price is right, the Jaguars would absolutely love to bring Ezra Cleveland back and have him starting at left guard for you. My concern, again, Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar, my concern is these guys' word isn't the gospel, but they obviously – are very good at what they do. Both the guys from Spot Track and PFF that I've talked to said Ezra Cleveland might get very, very overpaid because of the market at guard this offseason, and I wonder if that might price Ezra Cleveland out of Jacksonville. We'll certainly see. He's 27 years old. He has 50 starts in the NFL. He's young. He's got experience. There's a lot of intrigue there around Ezra Cleveland with other teams, it would appear, based on the guy's that I've talked to from Spot Track and again from Pro Football Focus. Jordan, we saw this earlier in the week in Pittsburgh. We're starting to see some salary dumps, guys that are getting released. You'll see that more and more heading into the March 11th free agent beginning. Here in Jacksonville, there's a lot of names out there. You mentioned one, Brandon Sheriff. Uh, I've heard Foley Fadakasi, Rayshon Jenkins, even Zay Jones. I mean, how many guys? Cam Robinson's another one that's a really interesting decision. How many of these veterans, these very well-known Jaguar players, 
could potentially be shown the door here over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, unfortunately for a lot of these guys, and a lot of them are very, you know, good teammates, good people off the field, good in the community, people that players like. Um, but uh, uh, I think a lot of them are, are going to be are going to be looking for new jobs in a few weeks here because I think the Jacksonville Jaguars they have the ability to create a ton of salary cap space. They have the ability to not reset the team, but to retool the team this offseason in a lot of ways. And a lot of the guys you've mentioned, they have built-in plans for, for moving forward, right? If you decide to move on from Cam Robinson, you have Harrison, you have Little, two guys that you've seen play at tackle quite a bit, right? If you decide to move on from Rayshon Jenkins, you have Antonio Johnson, who you brought in last year, and you like him a lot. I think he was an absolute steal uh, on, on day three of the draft. Um, so, yeah, and they have a lot of potential salary cap space if they do decide to move on from these guys to maybe even try to upgrade what they have. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out, but I do predict the Jaguars moving on from a lot of the guys that would uh, potentially save them some salary cap space. And again, this will happen sooner rather than later. March 11th, free agency begins. March 13th, people can officially sign. I mean, here we are in the middle of February. This isn't two or three months down the road. This is two or three weeks down the road that you're going to start seeing these guys getting released. And that leads me to my final question. We mentioned Calvin Ridley. I think, Jordan, we're going to know an awful lot about the Jaguar thought process on Ridley by what they do with Zay Jones. I don't think you can cut Zay Jones if you anticipate losing Ridley. Uh, if you anticipate losing Ridley, I think Zay Jones has to be in the future plans, does he not? Potentially. Um, I do think that there's wide receivers that are going to be on the market that could replace Zay Jones. And so you call it, you know, a wash potentially in that set in that scenario. But then how do you replace Calvin Ridley? How do you bring back a, a guy that that's on that level? And maybe the answer is doing something Trent bulky has not done much in his career. And that that's going and getting a wide receiver in the first round. The more I have looked at the way things could play out for the Jaguars, the more I, I lean towards them potentially doing that. And that's not necessarily what I would want to do. But when you look at the positions that are available in free agency, uh, that have potentially a wealth of talent wide receiver to me is not a, a position that's going to have a true wide receiver one for you to go get. And if that's going to be the guy that's going to, to help Trevor Lawrence for the next several years, unless it's Calvin Ridley, probably. Uh, but you look at the draft sitting at 17 overall, you could potentially have your pick of a lot of different wide receivers that you might view as potential number one receivers in, in the NFL so I do think when you talk about the interior of the offensive line, there's going to be guys out there in free agency. You talk about defensive line, there's going to be guys out there in free agency. Who's going to be out there in free agency for for uh, the, the Jaguars to bring in to really help Trevor Lawrence out at wide receiver? I'm not sure. Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar. Jordan, quickly, tell us about Generation Jaguar, what people can look forward to when they head on over to the website. Yeah, obviously we've uh, got our YouTube channel. We're putting out a ton of content on, on, on there video-wise. Uh, just did a mock draft yesterday, looking at the PFF mock draft today. And uh, we, last week we kind of went through a couple of different mock uh, situations. One that was completely predictive where I was trying to get inside the mind of Trent Baalke and go through the entire roster cut uh, 
portion of the offseason and then free agency and then the draft as well. And then I also did it from a what I would do perspective. So I think those are pretty good to go see uh, what the Jaguars could do and what I would have them doing. You can definitely check that out on YouTube or at ginjag.com. But, yeah, really appreciate you having me on, Hacker. Jordan DeLugo does a great job, and we certainly appreciate it. Jordan, next time you and I talk, it'll be right around free agency, and we'll see what happens with the Jaguars, with Josh Allen, Calvin Ridley. Should be a very interesting conversation in about a month's time. Appreciate you, my friend. Absolutely. Have a good one. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. It is a Tuesday evening, and we are glad you are with us. The Super Bowl in the rear view mirror, there is a ton going on on the college gridiron, and here we are in the middle of February, and if you can believe it, the first spring football schools open up in a couple of weeks, and a lot of spring games now are inside of two months. With that, let me go to my buddy Brent Beard. You see him locally on First Coast News. You get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. Mr. Beard, how are you, my friend? Well, I am doing well and uh, enjoying a little bit of cool, cooler weather. Uh, great point. Uh, well, uh, we're in the middle of the college basketball season, but we'll be starting with spring practice. Uh, I mean, goodness, uh, well, we're, we're virtually uh, to the halfway point of February, and uh, a lot of teams will be in practice, and we're two months away from spring games. It's amazing. Yeah, the calendar just keeps rolling on, there's no doubt. Quickly, Brent, the Super Bowl, uh, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, what else do you really need to say? The guy is one of the best players that's ever lived. There may be a, a conversation between he and Tom Brady uh, when he was the quarterback at Texas Tech, there isn't a soul on planet Earth that saw this coming. This guy yeah. has turned into the goat of this generation. You know, I saw an, an interesting note that both the quarterbacks in the Super Bowl at, at one point were academic Hall Americans, wow. uh, which I thought was interesting. Uh, so I so give them credit for that. Uh, great uh, comeback. It, frankly, was a an exciting game. I'm a little bit, and, and maybe it's not their fault, but uh, that some of the 49ers said they didn't know the rules in overtime. Uh, that was, that was interesting. Um, I don't get all this credit. Uh, I, I get it, but I don't, uh, all this criticism with, with, uh, Shanahan. Uh, I can tell you what, uh, how many coaches hack will be glad to have, uh, Switch places with Shanahan and lost that game too. Yeah, look, Shanahan's been to two Super Bowls. He was the coordinator for a third. Now he's over, but he certainly got there, and a lot of guys can't say that. Brent, I saw a conversation, and my buddy even asked me about this, and I said, you know what? I'm going to ask Brent that. The college overtime rule compared to the NFL overtime rule. Why wouldn't college play the length of the field? Why do they start at the 25 and, and do what the NFL did on Sunday? Well, they really need to look at that again and see not only do they start at the 25, but now as you get deeper into overtime, it basically is a two-point conversion battle, uh, which makes it almost even sillier. So, uh, I mean, you spend four quarters going up and down the field, uh, and then you get into uh, overtime, and look, most teams maybe have what hack uh, half a dozen, certainly less two point conversions. Your season's on the line. 
uh, and you can't even really run a full offense at the two yard line. Uh, so that they they I don't know if they would, uh, but I mean everything else transition now into the uh, uh, the, the new expanded playoffs. Uh, college football really does need a look at that. I'm sure they're probably concerned. Would it expand the game? Uh, look, sometimes expanding the game, if it makes it better, I think that's worth it. You see Brent Beard on First Coast News. You get him weekly here on Hacker After Dark. I agree. The argument is, well, there was that one like seven overtime Texas yeah. A&M LSU yeah. game, and right. we got to do something about that. But, I mean, those games are so few and far between. They've mm-hmm. basically gone to penalty kicks in soccer, which is essentially really? what two-point conversions are starting in the third overtime in college. Quickly, Brent, I thought this was a very cool story. We're going to talk to Brian Braddock, the head coach of St. Augustine, later on here tonight, St. Augustine High School. He was selected as the Jacksonville Jaguar Northeast Florida Coach of the Year, and he and his wife got two tickets to the Super Bowl. Every NFL team gives a coach of the year in their area, and that high school coach gets to go to the Super Bowl. Kudos to the NFL and all 32 organizations for doing that. I thought that was a great story. Yeah, and he certainly deserved it. I mean, they went about as far as they could go uh, in the playoffs and had a tremendous year. Uh, and, uh, look, the NFL, uh, now they play a Friday night game this coming season, and they'll get a lot of criticism about that from the high school uh, viewpoint. Uh, but that any anything the NFL can do to help high school coaches and or teams is a is a smart move on their part. Yeah, I agree. I, I hate what the ACC does in playing Friday night games. I'm just not a big fan of college ball. I hate the NFL doing it too. I guess if you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. That's the game in Brazil, and maybe there were scheduling issues, but apparently, yeah, Philadelphia is going to play a game in Brazil on opening weekend, that first Friday night of the year. Brent, college football, we're talking about spring ball and spring drills getting underway, and with that, some interesting things are coming out, including some projections for some over-under win-loss totals for SEC programs. And I see in your notes here that Florida – is an exact replica of last year. I want to say at this time last year, the over-under was at about five and a half. And again, the over-under is at about five and a half, which goes to show you what the outside world thinks of Florida's chances in 2024. Yeah, that's really um, uh, unfortunate. But um, uh, still, uh, look, they – uh, they actually could be a bit better than people think they could be, uh, and if they can, if they could take advantage, uh, particularly early on, uh, of some of that. Look, they could, they can beat Miami, they can beat Samford, uh, they can. Uh, um, now A and M uh, is good. Uh, that game's in Gainesville, so that's going to help them. Uh, but but that's a game they could win. Mississippi State they could beat. U UCF they could beat. So I mean uh, look, they, I mean they could start off uh, two, three, four, five, four and one and five and zero. Oh, if they could do that, uh, they've still got they got to play Kentucky. And I mean after that it, it gets kind of iffy. And I understand that, but. 
uh, from I'm just looking at this now, they could beat A and M uh, and start five and O. I mean, but people may may run off the road listening to that. Uh, but I think that that might even be possible. But uh, look, six or seven wins is not out of. Uh, I, I think the realm of possibility for them. They've got a uh, certainly a long way to go. The offensive line's got to be better. We know the defense, my stars, uh, can't help but be better. Special teams actually have someone to uh, uh, to work with them now. I'm, I'm still I, I still think Napier should have got an offensive coordinator and taken that part off of him. Uh, with that, but uh, it, it it is safe. It is safe to say that still, folks won't expect much out of Florida except five or six wins. You see, Brent Beard on First Coast News. You get him weekly here on Hacker After Dark. Brent, I agree with you, but think about your statement. It's not out of the realm of possibility for six or seven wins. Yeah, I mean that's where we right. are now with Florida football. And I go back to what you just said. It's the same story as last year. You're not going to beat Georgia, all right? You're just not. You're not going to go to Austin and beat Texas, and I highly doubt you're going to go to Tallahassee to beat Florida State. So you can almost chalk all three of those up as losses. Are you going to beat LSU next year? It's in Gainesville. I I don't know if you're going to beat LSU. We'll see about that. But it's the 50-50 games, right? UCF and Kentucky and A&M. Last year, Brent, they didn't win any of those 50-50 games other than Tennessee. You got to win 50-50 games this year if you're Billy Napier. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And look, uh, there's a good and a bad to this. The good is in the the first half of the schedule, you've got most of these games, you've got a chance to win. But look, the problem is, Hack, I'm just telling you, if they if they have a nightmare, and they start and they start the season, I don't know, throw something out there, two and five, or something of that nature, uh, and then they get into the meat of the schedule uh, in October and November, I could see that I could see them having to make a change by Halloween. Uh, I, I really sincerely hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but that that is that is really what's at stake, uh, and there's not a whole lot of wiggle room uh, in, in these situations. And so you've got teams. Ole Miss, Ole Miss is a top ten team at least on paper. Uh, now they've got them in Gainesville. Uh, so uh, look, there, there's not very many people in the nation that's got anything tougher than. Uh, Tennessee, Georgia, Texas, LSU, and Ole Miss, LSU, Ole Miss, and Florida State. I mean, that's ridiculous, frankly. Well, and you could legitimately argue, and I, I think you would not be laughed out of the room, that not only 2024, I'm talking about in recent memory, the Florida Gator football schedule is the hardest that I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, of any that, team. Man. I mean, you, you, you're you at right. Texas. You're at Tennessee. You're at Florida State. Uh, LSU, Georgia, I mean, Miami, Central Florida. And for all those Gator fans that say, oh, you got to play the best, right? We want a tough non-conference schedule. We don't want to play the Citadel or Ball State or Southern Miss. Well, okay. All right. 
You get Miami, you get UCF, and you yeah. get Florida State. You have right. three Power Five non-conference games mm-hmm. to go along with your eight conference games. So 11 of your 12 regular season games are against the Power Five. This is a situation where be careful what you wish for because sometimes you may get it and you may not like the result. Well, and they've got to be careful with Samford. Uh, people will snicker at that, but Samford can put some points on you, uh, and, they, and they can make it a long day themselves. That that Miami opener is humongous for both of those schools. Um, and, I mean, the coaches aren't – the losers aren't going to get fired, but it's going to be extremely important to be able to start um, – uh, doing well and being able to win that game. I will say this, too. You think about this. Here's Miami, Texas A&M, UCF, Kentucky, LSU, Ole Miss. Look, uh, for, the, for the Gator fans, you've said that, well, we haven't had a good home schedule lately. Well, I can tell you whether they like it the results, they've got a they've got a really powerful home schedule this year. It's a great home schedule, and, and you piqued my interest. We know how big a game that is for Napier on August 31st. Brent, how big a game is that for Cristobal? It's humongous, too. Look, people look at me funny when I say this, but I mean this. Miami's got a, as big of a rebuilding job as Florida does. Uh, and Napier gets all the attention uh, because of uh, the alumni base and so forth. But um, uh, the, the thing with Cristobal is, uh, Cristobal, every year, I mean, they're going to be uh, – Cristobal is a pretty good football coach. He's a good recruiter. But the problem with Cristobal is he did, it, he did this at Oregon. He's done it at Miami. They just have some absolutely mystifying losses. Obviously, the Georgia Tech game, where you don't just fall on the ball and run the clock out, and you get beat. So that, that, that's the problem here is if you're a Miami fan, you're thinking, I've got to win this game just in case that uh, the aforementioned Boston College rises up from the dead and upsets us in the fourth quarter. Final moments with Brent Beard. Brent, I want to end with college hoops before we get there. Some interesting things in college football. Boston College loses a head coach to become a coordinator in the NFL, and they have since hired Bill O'Brien. UCLA, Chip Kelly, leaves a head coaching spot to become a coordinator at Ohio State. I can't remember the last time a Power 5 coach basically said, I'm out of here to take a coordinator job. They've hired Deshaun Foster. But, wow, here we are in February, and two Power 5 jobs have now become, you know, vacant with obviously new coaching hires. And, see, the odd thing about that is for UCLA, that transfer portal window now is open for a month. Uh, It will be open until, like, mid-March. So – that, but, but to your point, the problem that we've got, and I'll even throw the, uh, the, the, the Gator strength and conditioning coach going to Boston College, too, to be, to be with Bill O'Brien, uh, is uh, 
the oddities of coaches doing that, I understand, is how, how insane now. Uh, and you've got um, coaches deciding to step back, frankly. So, uh, with that said, though, uh, with this schedule, no, I agree. We've never seen anything like that before. This Deshaun Foster was a running back coach at UCLA, so it's your proverbial smooth transition. But you and I have talked about this before. Smooth transitions don't always happen. Uh, in Michigan, maybe another one of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the teams with this, too. By the way, P.J. Fleck, or at least maybe his agent was trying to get his name out there, uh, was having some interest in that job. Hank, uh, UCLA is not a great job anymore, like, like it was when Terry Donahue was there. Uh, they've got a great location. They're 10 miles from the beach. And they could be much better. But man, oh, man, uh, Hank, how would you like to be Deshaun Foster? <clears throat> you don't have a lot of momentum. Now you're going into the Big Ten, uh, and you've got that schedule. Yeah, it's a tough putt for UCLA. There's absolutely no question about that. Brent Beard, Brent, leave us with this, a little college hoops talk. I saw the stat about Auburn and Gainesville prior to the game on Saturday, that Auburn, even though they haven't played every year, they haven't won in Gainesville since 1996. They had lost 14 in a row. And I thought, wow, that's insane. And then they go into Gainesville on Saturday and get absolutely clobbered. Florida has now beat Auburn 15 consecutive times in Gainesville. That's got to be one of the biggest anomalies in college basketball right now. It it reminds me of uh, the Alabama-LSU streak uh, that uh, Alabama did not lose to Matt Rouge in football from like 69 through 82. Uh, but, but, but as far as on, on the – Hardwood, tremendous win for uh, Florida in that game. Uh, but that is incredibly unusual, especially as, with as good a coach as Bruce Pearl is. But I'm just telling you, Florida could be a force to be reckoned with with those three bigs uh, in the middle. Very few people have got three. Most of them have two. Some of them maybe have one, and that's going to be about it. But, uh, look, you're, here's the problem with the Gators uh, is winning a big game like that, and then you've got LSU uh, that you ought to beat by 20, uh, and I bet you that game comes down to uh, the last two or three minutes uh, because uh, and my question to you is, is Florida mature enough, Hank, after a big win to come back and and be even keel in their next uh, game? That's one question I'll leave you with. The other question is, I know about all this Big 12, how good they are, but I'm telling you, the SEC, they may not be the best league in the nation, but I, but, but I would argue with people right now, this league might be, what, hack two or three? at least in the nation, that's how good this league is this year. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I think they're going to absolutely get seven teams into the tournament. They might get eight, and heck, for that matter, they potentially could get nine teams into the NCAA tournament. And quickly to your thought on Florida, 
no, they're not mature enough because they go to Kentucky and win, and then they right. completely blow the game right. against A and M. So hey, this absolutely this game against LSU is a big one. You gotta consolidate the win over ten over uh, who they beat on Auburn on Saturday with a win over LSU coming up. You get Brent Beard on First Coast News. You also get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. Brent, thank you for the time, my friend. Appreciate you. We'll do it again next week. Good. Thanks, brother. Always enjoy it. And the high school spotlight rolls on here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. The Super Bowl in the rearview mirror. And the Jacksonville Jaguars sent one of our guys out to the Super Bowl. That's right. Brian Braddock, the head coach of St. Augustine, was the coach of the year in the area as selected by the Jacksonville Jaguars. With that, he got two tickets to Super Bowl 58. He's fresh back from Las Vegas, and he joins us here on 1010XL. Coach, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Coach, we're good. All right. Super Bowl, Las Vegas. Uh, I'm probably some things that you can't talk about. Let's talk about the things that you can talk about. Uh, what was the experience like for you? Oh, it was uh, it was really awesome. Um, first time my wife and I had ever been out to Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, not, not really our scene, but um, – <laughs> Certainly, you know, you know what's cool though is like like there's there's a lot of awesome stuff just to go sightsee um, in the appropriate way out there, and and that was really just we just enjoyed that a ton. Um, it was really really neat. Uh, got up early in the morning, obviously because we're on Eastern time, and uh, we're just able to kind of walk the strip and see all the hotels and all the all just the the bright and just everything's just so big and bright, and you know obviously people know that, but to us it was brand new, so it was really really cool. Yeah, I can totally relate to that, and I remember thinking the first time I went there. I'm really happy I'm married and in my upper 30s as opposed to coming out here for the first time single and in my mid-20s. I probably would have gotten into a lot more trouble then. Uh, but Vegas itself, I mean, for the Super Bowl, it's the first time the Super Bowl was held out there. I can't imagine what that town was like. Yeah, um, and it was funny because, because like I so said, we got up early Saturday morning and went walking, and then by, by about mid-afternoon, the place was electric. Um, it definitely had changed by Saturday night. The place was on fire. Um, you know, just uh, tons of 49ers fans, obviously, being so close to California and uh, obviously a lot of Chiefs fans as well. So it was just super exciting. And uh, we actually went to uh, the U2 concert in the Sphere on Saturday night, which that was a, a, a an experience worth going out to Las Vegas for as well. Um, so that was cool and just there was a ton of energy in the, the city and certainly nothing like we'd ever experienced. Brian Braddock, the head coach of St. Augustine. You mentioned the Sphere, right? That was one of the stars of Super Bowl week. Everybody was talking about it. I have not experienced that yet. Obviously, U2, I believe that was basically built for U2 to be out there in Vegas. What is that place like on the inside? It's it's interesting. When you walk in, it almost feels like a like a bomb shelter because um, it's just it's it's literally and and of course when you when you come in they have the, the all the screens are very nondescript um so, it, so it's kind of got that feel you're just like in a, in a dome you know what i mean but like a small obviously a spherical dome and uh so it's, it's disorienting at first it's extremely steep on the inside um but yeah then once once the concert gets going it's just a, a sensory overload it was a it was really, really cool. Um, I appreciate it. It seemed like they didn't depend on it too much, which obviously I don't think you two would have to. Um, so it was, it was an awesome experience as well, and the concert was great. No, oh, that's terrific. And now let's get to the game. Let's first talk about the stadium. I've seen that stadium from the outside. I actually took a helicopter ride over the Strip the last time I was in Vegas, and they show you the stadium, and it's amazing 
I've never been on the inside of it, obviously. You were for the Super Bowl. The stadium itself, is it as great as they make it out to be? Yeah, it's incredible. Um, it's it's interesting. There's you know We were up pretty high, but there really isn't a, a super high seat there in other stadiums. Um, you know, other, other stadiums are built differently. This one uh, is, is almost maintains the same level all the way around, so it was really cool. It's great viewing. Um, obviously, being in a dome um, was extremely comfortable. Only other time I'd been to a dome for a sporting event it was been down in Miami to go to a baseball game. So uh, it was it was a great venue. It was, it was wonderful. Brian Braddock of St. Augustine. He was the coach of the year, as said by the Jacksonville Jaguars. With that, he got two tickets to the Super Bowl. He's with us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Coach, that brings us to the game. Talk, take us through the pregame festivities. What's it like walking into a Super Bowl? How early did you get there? How did that day go for you? Yeah, we we uh, you know we kind of made Sunday obviously all about that game. So. Um, it was just, it was super exciting, you know, walking in. And, and one of the things I kept hearing over and over about Vegas being such a great site was that everything's extremely close together, um, which, which is cool because people were comparing it to Phoenix. Uh, I think that was last year and how everything is so far apart, the stadium so far from, from the city center. And so it was really cool in Vegas. We, we walked from our hotel um, to the stadium um, and, and the majority of people, that's what they were doing because everything's right there. Um, obviously there was, high energy. Uh, I thought, you know, from a logistical standpoint, they did an amazing job of getting people into the stadium in a really efficient manner. Um, but yeah, it was really cool. They had all kinds of, uh, live performances and, and, you know, the, the stuff that would accompany like college football playoff slash Super Bowl type events. So it was, it was really cool. We got there early and, uh, actually went inside and kind of explored, got some pictures way down, you know, at field level. Um, and just kind of wanted to make sure that we took it all in. Yeah, I thought it was nuts when I found out they were building that stadium near the Strip. I thought they were crazy, but obviously they were right because it is all right there together. The last time I stayed out there was at the Bellagio, and you can go pretty much anywhere from any of those hotels. Now bring us to the game itself, Coach. I mean, it was a great game, obviously. It went to overtime uh, from the halftime show to what's going on in the stadium, all the celebrities. I mean, it looked wonderful on TV. Was it as great with the in-game experience? Yeah, yeah, it was really cool, and and um, you know, obviously when you're when you're there, you don't get the in-depth coverage of maybe all the details of the actual game. Um, so it was kind of funny trying to look stuff up um, on your phone when they happened, like the Dre Greenlaw injury. It was like, what happened? Like, where did he go? Because because we never saw it. You know what I mean? Because it was on the sideline. Um, so so just things like that. But as far as like the energy in the stadium, to me, I was just talking to one of our coaches. I compare it. It was the first pro football game I'd ever been to that was like a big time, big time college football game as far as the energy. Um, and I would assume that, you know, in pro sports, um, that's kind of what you get in the big playoff games and obviously in the championship games. So um, for me, that was cool being kind of more of a college football guy. It really felt like felt like you were at a 1998 Florida, Florida State game or something like that. Like there was just so much intensity in the uh, stadium, which is um, not always the case if you go to like a regular season professional game. Um, so that was really cool. The game was awesome. Um, obviously, a disjointed first half. Um, 49ers probably felt like they should have had a bigger lead and probably felt like, you know, the game itself probably got away, but a great game. And, um, you know, I guess Mahomes is the new Brady. So, well, yeah. What, what and, and, and 58 <laughs> Super Bowls, right? You got to experience one where the game ended on the final play. That's happened yeah. like a handful of times, right? Scott Norwood. Yeah. Uh, the Falcon Patriot game, the Vinatieri kicks, but by and large, yeah. the Super Bowl does not end 
on one singular play. You got to experience that. What was that stadium like when Mahomes hit Hardman for the game winner? Well, it was insane. I mean, it was it was um, you know, because it's so different because uh, you, you truly saw a breakdown, a, a near fifty fifty breakdown of just jubilation and just you know demoralization and just uh, extreme disappointment. Which you don't always get that, you know. Um, only championship games are generally the only kind of games that offer that juxtaposition of emotions because usually you're in somebody's home stadium. So it's either all disappointment or all jubilation, you know. Um, so so it was wild to just see that. And us not being, you know, huge fans of, of either. We, we, were, we were rooting for the 49ers, but, um, you know, obviously not being personally invested in, in either team a ton. Um, it was it was really um, cool for us to be able just to appreciate how great of a game it was. So, uh but yeah, I think I think everybody in the stadium kind of expected to happen what happened <laughs> um, when uh, once it got to overtime, and and even when the Chiefs, even, even when the 49ers only went up by three uh, late in the fourth quarter, again it's like it's like when Tom Brady was playing, like you, you kind of felt like I, I was going to be shocked if the Chiefs didn't win the game at that point. Final moments, Brian Braddock, the head coach of St. Augustine. Coach, as we wrap up, and again, appreciate you joining us. You literally got back from Vegas last night, and you're on with us today, so we certainly thank you for that. Um, being the coach of the year by the Jacksonville Jaguars, I know I talked to you about it when it happened, but they sent you to the Super Bowl as an honor for that award. I know how much it meant to you, and now that you've got to experience that, the whole scene, the whole situation, I know you're probably very – very thankful to the Jaguars for doing that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few groups that obviously I'm just super grateful uh, to. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, the Jaguars made it happen. Um, this is something that, that my wife and I um, would have never been able to do or pull off um, without their generosity to send us out there. So we're incredibly, you know, grateful to the, the foundation and Jaguars prep and everything that they do, you know, day to day in our Northeast Florida uh, regional coverage area for high school sports and youth sports. But for them to do that was really just an amazing blessing for my wife and I. And then, you know, I told, told my staff last night, they were asking me about it. I'm going to tell our kids there in the weight room right now. I'm going to tell them here in a couple of minutes that, you know, I, I wish I could have taken the, all hundred of them because um, truly that's why we got to go. We've got awesome kids here and an awesome coaching staff and we're fortunate and blessed to have an amazing season. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it was a team effort and I'm grateful that, that the Jaguars recognized it. And my wife and I truly felt spoiled to get to go out there. So really grateful to, to the Jags, our, our coaches and our players here at St. Augustine and everybody involved. Well, the Jags chose you because you had a heck of a year. It was a great season for St. Augustine, from the players to the staff to what you did as the head coach, Brian Braddock of the St. Augustine Yellow Jackets. Coach, it won't be that long before spring drills right around the corner. What's the off-season program like right now? Yeah, we, uh, you know, actually we are we are closer. I think we just crossed over the the demarcation line where we are closer to spring ball than we are further from the end of our regular season last year. So it's coming. Um, you know, off season's going great. We got, we got again, just tremendous kids and a great staff. Our kids are working hard. Like I said, they're in the weight room right now as I speak in uh, first period weights and um, got a lot of talented kids coming back, but, uh, but much like last year, um, you know, we got to put it to, to work on the field and do all the things necessary to hopefully put ourselves in position to be successful. Got a pretty, uh, a pretty stout 2024 schedule um, that we just finished up a, a week or two ago. And um, we're excited to tackle that. It's going to take a great off season to be successful with that schedule. Well, Coach, we always appreciate it. Again, Brian Braddock, the coach of the year in the area here in Northeast Florida, fresh back from the Super Bowl out in Las Vegas. Coach, glad you had a great time. Thank you for joining us, my friend. We'll talk again soon. 
Thanks, Hacker. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate everything you do for high school sports in our area. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. The Super Bowl in the rearview mirror now, so a lot of eyes will begin turning to the NBA as we approach All-Star Weekend. Most teams have between 25 and 28 regular season games left. It'll be a mad sprint to the finish, and the NFL or the NBA playoffs rather are ripe around the corner. With that, Brian Teporg, Bleacher Report and Forbes. He's one of our guys here on 1010XL covering the NBA, and we're always happy to have him with us here on Hacker After Dark. Brian, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, as always. Hey, Brian, appreciate the time. I'm contractually obligated to ask you this week about the Super Bowl before we get into the NBA. You cover the NBA, but obviously you're a sports fan up in the northeast part of the country. Uh, your thoughts on what you saw with Patrick Mahomes in Kansas City getting it done yet again? Yeah, I mean, it's just unreal. What I mean, the, the, you know, the worst supporting cast he's had in terms of pass catchers probably throughout his entire career. And, I mean, I would just be sick if I was an Niners fan today, honestly. That, that was my big takeaway is that the Niners dominated that game for most of it and, you know, had chances to put that game away early and just let the Chiefs linger and linger. And when you're facing Patrick Mahomes, you know, you have to account for, especially at the end of the game, you're going to get some Mahomes magic. So an incredible performance all around. I thought the Chiefs defense has really been the story all season for them. Uh, as their offense has been struggling and inconsistent, their defense has been keeping them in games. And I think we saw that again last night where, you know, they, they limited the Niners just enough to let Mahomes do his thing at the end. And, you know, I, I, I think we're yet now need to have some of the legacy talks where Mahomes ranks all time, where Kelsey ranks all time, where they're, the, you know, among the best duos in NFL history, best dynasties in NFL history, I think. All of that is fair game at this point. Three rings in four years, you know, multiple trips to the AFC Championship game. Beyond that, it's just an incredible run that they're on. You know, to compare the NFL and the NBA a little bit, Tom Brady is Michael Jordan. I guess Patrick Mahomes now is LeBron James. Is that a good comparison? Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, you could flip it with, uh, with Gronk and Kelsey where, you know, Gronk probably had the higher peak but Kelsey is now going to end up having more career accolades most likely. And then Brady and Mahomes is the exact inverse of that. So it's funny that, you know, the two, two fan bases, Patriots fans and Chiefs fans are going to be making arguments for why their guy is the goat. Uh, and they're going to have to use inverse arguments to justify it for Mahomes and Kelsey versus Brady and Gronk. You know, just talking out loud, and again, I want to get to the NBA, but to me, that, that piques my interest. I guess it's bad when a question I ask piques my interest. But, you know, LeBron <laughs> James to Michael Jordan, Patrick Mahomes to Tom Brady, which two are closer, in your opinion? Mm. That's tough. I mean, probably Brady and Jordan, just because you know, volume of rings in their respective sports and also just the way that they kind of snuffed out all of their competition. Like Peyton Manning probably should have more than two rings. Aaron Rodgers definitely should have more than one ring just based on the caliber of quarterback that they are. But because those guys played in the same era as Tom Brady, unfortunately, they will not be as recognized as they otherwise probably deserve to be. 
same deal with you know anyone who played in the NBA in the nineties. I mean, Charles Barkley probably deserved to win a ring. Uh, you know, Carl Malone and John Stockton, those Utah teams were incredible, but because they went up against Michael Jordan, they're gonna you know have that on their resumes all time as never quite were able to get it done. Yeah, and, you know, look, here in Jacksonville, we have Trevor Lawrence, Justin Herbert in L.A. You go up Mm -hmm. to, obviously, um, Tua in Miami, C.J. Stroud, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, all these AFC quarterbacks. They got six months to figure it out. You got to beat Mahomes (laughs) and the Chiefs. And they had six months last year, Brian. They couldn't figure it out then. So we'll see what happens here in the NFL offseason. All right, now let's get into your specialty. Again, Brian Tapork, a Bleacher Report, and Forbes covering the National Basketball Association. Brian, biggest winners from last week's NBA trade deadline? Yeah, I mean, I think the New York Knicks have to be up there. Um, getting Bojan Bogdanovic, Alec Burks for really, you know, Quentin Grimes, two second-round picks, and basically salary filler after that, especially with Julius Randle out for the next couple weeks, OG Ananobi out for the next couple weeks. Those guys should be nice depth pieces, but then even when they're back at full strength, you know, the Knicks now go a legit, like, nine or ten deep that they can run out in the playoffs. And, you know, Bogdanovic certainly has his defensive concerns, as does Alec Burks, but you know, not needing to rely on those guys for 30 or 35 minutes per game will help mitigate some of that. If they were just, you know, 15, 20 minutes per game role players off the bench in the playoffs, their scoring is going to help keep those second units afloat. So I really liked what the Knicks did. Um, I liked what the Hornets did. I'm actually glad they just picked the direction. You know, it started a couple weeks before the deadline when they traded Terry Roger to the Miami Heat. But getting off of PJ Washington as well and getting a top two protected 2027 second or first round pick from the Dallas Mavericks when Luka Doncic's long-term future is very much unsettled as of now. Uh, There's a lot of upside with that pick. And I think it's, you know, the Hornets are going nowhere this year. So I think it was just smart of them to realize that and to try to take advantage of that and start accumulating more assets for their rebuild because there are a couple other teams in a similar position that did not make that choice and kind of straddled the line at the trade deadline, probably to their detriment. You know, I was watching the Super Bowl with some buddies, and we got into an NBA conversation. And this is a sad statement, but it's reality. I am having more fun watching the five games over 500 Orlando Magic right now, Brian, than I've had in years. I mean, we're yeah. 29 and 24 at the time you and I are talking seventh in the east right but I think this is great I mean here we are in the middle of February and I have legit playoff aspirations for the Orlando Magic Uh, they started off strong at 16 and 7 they faltered a little bit due to injuries but boy ever since Franz Wagner came back from that ankle injury they seem to have found themselves here over the last couple of weeks yeah absolutely I mean Paolo first all-star appearance and first of what will likely be many um, I actually think Jonathan Isaac has looked good in limited minutes for them. You know, Wendell Carter Jr. coming back has been a big help. You know, you and I have talked a lot about the Magic in the past year or two, and I, I've said that this type of success is coming. You, you could see that they had assembled a nice young core in place, and they still have it with Paolo and Franz in particular. So, you know, I think it's lofty to expect much more than first-round playoff appearance, but... You know, it's very rare for teams to go from 
lottery to a deep playoff run in one season. So these are the building blocks that young teams typically need to go through. And then the Magic still have a lot of flexibility moving forward, at least for the time being. So they can continue to build on that. However, this season ends up, they'll be able to continue building on that this offseason and you know have enough young players you can reasonably project a lot of internal improvement. Brian Teporg, Bleacher Report, and Forbes here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Brian, were you surprised Orlando did not do anything at the trade deadline? Not really. I mean, they didn't didn't seem like they had the urgency that some of these other teams did, whether because of expiring contracts or you know where they are in the standings. Um, who knows what was offered to Orlando, what they were pursuing, what was available to them. But, you know, I, I, again, I don't think they faced as much urgency as some of these other teams that either needed to pick a direction like Charlotte or, you know, the, a team like the Knicks that knew they were shorthanded for the next few weeks and wanted to bolster their playoff rotation. You know, you alluded to it with Paolo earlier. Look, when a Los Angeles Laker is an all-star, it's not a big deal in L.A., right? When mm -hmm. a Boston Celtic or a Philadelphia 76er are all-stars, it's not big deals in those markets. When an Orlando Magic player becomes an all-star, it's been few and far between. I mean, how big a deal is that for a franchise like Orlando to get Bancaro into the all-star game? Yeah, I think it's a huge deal. You know, it just signifies that they have one of the league's best up-and-coming players in Paolo, and I, I would not be surprised if Franz joins him in the All-Star game at some point soon. So, you know, I, I think if anything, it should give fans even more confidence, if they didn't already have it, that the Magic got that pick right um, in Paolo, because I know it was you know between him and Chet and Jabari Smith Jr., there was a, a lot of uncertainty leading up to the draft. And, you know, Chet has been phenomenal as well, so I don't want to take anything away from him. But I think Paolo is exactly what uh, what Orlando needed. And, you know, I, I, again, I think it's going to be the first of many for him. Quickly, as we go into the All-Star break, and most teams have between 25, 28 games remaining in the regular season, the Eastern Conference. I mean, is that the Boston Celtics Invitational come playoff time? <laughs> is there anybody that can do anything with them? I think so. I mean, the Boston Celtics are very clearly the best team in the East, and they're almost certainly going to finish with the number one seed in the East. But I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they win the conference. I think the Knicks might be the biggest threat to them, assuming they can get back to full strength. But the Cleveland Cavaliers has been playing unbelievably well for the past month or two. Um, the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, obviously undergoing some transition right now, going from Adrian Griffin to Doc Rivers, a head coach, but they just brought in Patrick Beverly at the trade deadline. And we'll see. I mean, they, they're going to need the next couple months to really coalesce. So it's hard to say exactly what they're going to be by mid-April. Um, the Philadelphia 76ers are a complete wild card right now with Joel Embiid sidelined by knee the team won't call it a surgery, but it was knee surgery, a uh, meniscus procedure. So they're hoping he'll be back in, you know, I think reasonably six to eight weeks seems like the earliest he will be back. So if they can stay afloat or even just stay in the play-in mix without him, you know, maybe they end up being like what Miami was last year, you know, the seven or eight seed that no team wants to face in the playoffs. Because with a healthy Joel Embiid, you know, they were fighting for the two seed in the East, and they just got Buddy Heald at the trade deadline, who's been 
a great addition for them. So you know, Boston, again, the most talented team in the East. They have the best top six in the East. You know, they, they have a very modern shooting profile and that they take a ton of threes and they are just banking on math. You know, three is greater than two. So if you take more threes and you hit them at a pretty high volume, you're more often than not going to win. But I think there are some slight concerns. You know, if they go cold shooting, do they attack the basket enough? Um, is their offensive profile and like shot profile and, you know, late game execution has been a bugaboo for them with Tatum and Brown in recent years. So I don't think they're invulnerable by any means. If you ask me to take Boston or the field, I'd probably take the field, but um, I, I think they will go into the playoffs as not only the favorite to win the East, but the favorite to win the championship. You know, you head out West quickly, Brian, it's a jumbled mess. Let's begin at the top. I mean, good grief with Oklahoma city, with Minnesota, Denver, the Clippers, that appears to be working right now with James Harden, which is pretty interesting. I mean, how do you assess those four teams at the top of the conference? Yeah, I think Denver has to be at the top just because they're the reigning champions and, you know, they're going through, uh, they're approaching the regular season, I think, the way that most teams should, especially if you're confident you're going to be a top six seed. And that Denver knew it's going to be really hard to build around Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr., all of whom are on max contracts. It's going to be hard to build around them in this new environment with this new collective bargaining agreement that went into effect this past offseason. So they went really young in on their bench, and they are using the regular season to get a lot of reps for these young guys because they know they're going to have to count on them, at least some of them, in the playoffs. But also in the playoffs, you know, their starting five is going to play a lot more than they have been in the regular season. So, you know, it's that's the always the tricky thing about weighing regular season versus playoffs. Like the top end talent just typically wins out in the playoffs. In Denver, we saw proof of concept last year, and we even saw it, you know, against the Lakers uh, last week, I believe, on the night of the trade deadline. You know that they were letting the Lakers hang around, but then a couple minutes left, Denver just slammed the door on their head. So I, I would still have Denver as the favorite in the West. Uh, Clippers have looked very good as long as, you know, no one, I don't think anyone doubted them in terms of talent. It was just, can they stay healthy? If they, if you have James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George all healthy in mid-April, they're going to have as good of a shot as anyone. Um, OKC, I really liked the Gordon Hayward addition at the trade deadline. I feel like it kind of went unnoticed, which is, you know, probably a reflection of skepticism about Hayward's ability to stay healthy. But if he can, and since OKC won't have to rely on him as a high minute starter, they can, similar to New York with Bogdanovich and Burks, they can play him for 15 or 20 minutes a night. But he gives them something. You know, they, I, I think, especially once the playoffs begin, teams are not going to be respecting Lou Dort and Josh Giddy offensively, or at least in terms of like shot creation. Hayward is a much bigger threat in that department. So if teams are sagging off of Giddy or are sagging off of Dort and OKC needs someone else to turn to, they have Gordon Hayward now to put next to Shea Gilchrist Alexander, Jalen Williams, Chet Holmgren. That is a very, very scary team. So, you know, similar to what I said about Orlando, it's it's rare for a young team like that 
to make it to the conference finals or to make it to the NBA finals. So I think that's the biggest reason to be skeptical of OKC. But honestly, other than that, I think they have a very good shot of at least winning a round in the playoffs. And then Minnesota, it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're, everything says they're a good team, but there's just a lot of skepticism about them. I think especially their late game execution can get wonky at times. We've seen Rudy Gobert in the playoffs. Um, I, you know, it's wrong to say he gets played off the floor because that's not true. But, you know, this two big look that they have, I think it's going to work really well against some opponents and it's not going to work very well against others. But the concern is, you know, other teams are able to be more malleable or shift their identities or lineups based on opponent. And I'm not as sold that Minnesota can do that so i think more more than for denver more than for okc minnesota is really just going to come down to which opponents do they draw in each round well that's the crazy part as we wrap up you know you work 82 games to get the highest seed that you can and some of those teams in the west they might get golden state in round one or the lakers or dallas or phoenix even the west is going to be absolutely insane i cannot wait for the postseason all-star weekend is upon us brian leave us with this bleacher report forbes what can people look forward to as we head into all-star weekend yeah um trying to think i've I've done a ton on the trade deadline in recent days i'll have something on some sixers buyout targets at forbes hopefully later today um you know i'm a i cover the sixers for liberty ballers so i i've already got my eyes trained toward the offseason for them because they are set up for a very interesting offseason where they can create, you know, up to like $65 million of cap space. So, you know, I think it is a long shot that they will get someone like LeBron James or Paul George, both of whom can become free agents this offseason. But I am very, very curious what Daryl Morey and company have up their sleeve, and I will be writing a ton about it for the next five months. Brian Tapork does a great job. Bleach Report, Forbes, among many other outlets covering the National Basketball Association. Brian, enjoy All-Star Weekend, man. We'll do it again soon. Thank you. Anytime. And thank you to Brian Tapork of Bleacher Report and Forbes for talking NBA with us here on Hacker After Dark. Is yeah, All-Star Weekend coming up this weekend. Again, congratulations to the Orlando Magic's Paolo Bancaro who was named a first-time All-Star in only his second year in the NBA. And Orlando, a hot team right now, they would be the sixth seed as it stands right now, competing with Indiana and Miami. And, of course, it's good to be the sixth seed because that means you don't have to play in the play-in tournament. Remember the play-in tournament, seven plays eight, nine plays ten. You have to play your way in to the playoff field if you're seed seven, eight, nine, or ten the sixth seed is automatically in to the NBA postseason. Well, that'll just about do it. It has been a very busy late-night edition of Hacker After Dark here on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We certainly appreciate you guys staying up late with us here on a Tuesday night. Again, Brian Taporg, Bleacher Report, and Forbes, one of our NBA guys here on Hacker After Dark. We always appreciate talking ball with Brian. Thank you to Brian Braddock, another Brian. Brian Braddock, the head coach of St. Augustine High School, as he was the Whataburger Jaguar Coach of the Year, and they got 
tickets to Vegas. He and his wife were out in Las Vegas for the Super Bowl. It was cool to talk to Brian Braddock, again, the head coach of St. Augustine, about his experience out in Las Vegas at Super Bowl 58. We certainly appreciate him taking time back with us fresh off the plane. He got off the plane late last night and joins us here today on Hacker After Dark. Thank you to my buddy Brent Beard, college football news and notes with my buddy Brent Beard. You see him on First Coast News, and you get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. And back in hour number one, Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar. Always love talking ball with Jordan as the Jaguars and the rest of the NFL get ready for an offseason. It's going to get here pretty quick. They are on the field in Indianapolis for the scouting combine two weeks from Thursday, if you can believe that. They're on the field in Indy. Free agency is March 11th. The franchise tag can begin being handed out one week from today, so it's going to come at us pretty quick, and we appreciate Jordan joining us tonight here on 1010XL. We'll be back tomorrow night on a Wednesday, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker, Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for staying up late with us on a Tuesday right here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Tuesday night, and we will talk to you again tomorrow night on a Wednesday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.